HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Courtney Boyd Myers, founder, CEO, and CMO of Akua, the company making the world's first meat alternative products made from kelp with regenerative ocean farming. Prior to launching Akua, Courtney helped build the Summit Community, a global network of founders, creatives, and innovators. She has experience as a journalist, a marketer, and has been recognized as one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. Hi, CVM. I am so happy you're finally here. I know. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. Thank you for having me. I've been, been, you know, watching you and build your company and your podcast for so long and been eating your delicious products uh, ever since we made our first kelp burger. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. You are one of those people, you know, in these, in these Slack channels of people that you don't know, but that you start to feel like you know you know, <laughs> like I, we, I don't think we've actually ever met and yet I, I feel like I know you. It's a very strange thing, I guess, because you're always just very supportive, especially, you know, in our sort of like women led channels. Um, and you just, you're a real cheerleader for other brands and other people kind of in it. So, um, I feel like we, we connect on that level. Definitely. Well, as you mentioned, I was a community builder prior to building Akua as a company. And so, you know, actually, I would say that community building comes much more naturally to me than does being the CEO of a CPG company. And, uh, you know, anytime I can connect right. and, and combine those two things, I do. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a, a, an interesting place to start. Um I mean, number one sort of just like big picture is in a way we are sort of like the chief community builders of 
the companies, right? Like not all founders are, but I think a lot of us, especially in like the ENFJ world. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) Yeah, figured. um, You know, we do tend to sort of be like, let's all gather around and how can we bring everyone into this circle and how can we express what we are so that it's attractive to whoever the stakeholder might be, um, you know, whether it's the consumer, the distributor, the co-packer or your own team. Um, so, I mean, I guess before we even get started, just because you started it, do you feel like those two, you know, if you have the Venn diagram and one circle is I'm a really good community builder and the other circle is I have to run a CPG business, where do you find those two things not helping each other? Spreadsheets. <laughs> no, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think as a, you know, as a CEO, your your role is half, you know, community building, whether that's investors or customers or grocery store buyers, you know, just general network. I think other founders are probably the most helpful connections when building a company. And then, you know, I think uh, getting back to the grind and kind of uh, looking at your company, uh, managing people, um, you know, looking at the the operations of the business and making sure your accounting is all, you know, the trains are running on time. I think all that part um, is is for me personally, the, the harder part of building a business. Yeah. I mean, I will also say that I think as I mature in this business, I realize So I have a son that's going to law school in the fall. And, you know, he was saying the other day, I just hope that I can, I can understand everything. (laughs) And I was like, I, I think it's not a question of if you can understand everything, it's going to be a question of, is the material presented to you in a way where you can synthesize it? If not, you need to know that so that you can figure out another way for it to get to you. And B, are you in the mindset for really being able to understand it? Like you have the capacity to do everything that's required of you, right? Like I think you probably and I have the capacity if, if we decided to spend the next three years learning how to be Excel masters It wouldn't be fun. No, we would hate it. (laughs) I would like be miserable, but do we have the capacity to do it? Yeah. Yes. So that being said, there's nothing too crazy for us to understand. It's just, are we in the mindset to be able to figure this stuff out? And is it being presented to us probably more importantly in a way where it is decipherable for us? So I didn't even know what I didn't know before. So I didn't know what to ask of the finance team, or I didn't know what I wanted on a dashboard, or I didn't know how to like get a final closing call and be like, wait, that, what's that number? Cause I just didn't even know, you know? And, and that's the the hardest part, right? Is, is not knowing what you don't even know to ask about. Um, and it, unfortunately, I think the way at least I learned those things is through, you know, trial and error and mess ups and and the whole thing. And I, I, I'm sure that I could do a better job as a founder, you know, asking everyone, what are the questions I should be asking that I'm not, you know, the, you know, what's your candid view of, you know, asking consultants or people like that are not in the grind every day, like what's your candid view of how this business is operating right now? You know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. 
and that, I mean, I think that's what, that's what's fun about being in these things together, you know, picking a broker for X, Y, Z, like is 90 days. Like, is that, is that industry standard? Like is 5% normal is 3% normal is 7% normal. Like what? And you know, then it gets into category and whatnot. But I think that's the, the beauty of all these communities and, you know, things like this, where we actually talk about that stuff and figure some stuff out, you know, before we waste too much money or lose our marbles. Yeah. Lose our shirts with the wrong broker, which is, (laughs) I think we've all been there. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, for, for anyone in the food CPG industry, um, what I love about our industry is that it, it is very helpful. You know, I think people do go out of their way to like, be very transparent around, you know, the brokers to work with or not to work with, like what are fair fees, what are fair lead times and, and all of that. Um, so that's, that's one, one of the good things the about breakup. working in food. Yeah. How many months do you have to pay once they stop working? Um, okay. So let's get back to the jerky because it all began with the jerky <laughs> yep. in 2019. So you were not running a company, you were building community and you were marketing and you were doing other things. And from my understanding, you start, you kind of got your introduction to kelp through Greenwave. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I And tell us about that. Yeah, I was I was hosting dinners and I was I was thinking I wanted to build a business in in wellness or food, you know, through my work at Summit. I was meeting a, a lot of really interesting people, um, like uh Taro Isokopola, the founder of Four Sigmatic, and you know, I was just obsessed with, you know, the world of mushrooms and fungi and then all of, you know, sort of even, even before, you know, microdosing, this was sort of taking chaga and lion's mane and cordyceps for health. And then, um, I'd always been like that weird white girl walking around Asian grocery stores in New York city, pulling seaweeds off this shelf and making my own seaweed salads. And so really just randomly a very, very dear childhood friend who's now on our board, um, said, why don't you come out and visit a kelp farm uh, in Connecticut, not too far from where we grew up? And I said, oh, I'd love to. And he's like, you know, it's this kind of new brand of agriculture. Everyone's calling regenerative agriculture and it has all these environmental benefits. And, you know, you can just eat kelp right off a rope. And I was like, you know, went out on this boat and ate kelp right off a rope and, you know, ate a raw scallop too. And, and I just felt this in, you know, incredible connection to the sea and I always have. And so this idea of, could I build a business that helped other people really connect with the ocean in that way through food, which is, you know, such a wonderful connective tool. And also in the same time, do something that supports human health, do something that supports environmental health. And, um, and yeah, I just felt like in that moment, this, this business idea, this project that it was even before we thought of jerky, um, it ticked a lot of boxes for things I, I care about in life. So, and so what, I mean, just, you know, for everyone listening, what is sort of that, the line where sustainable turns into regenerative? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think you look at the word sustainable and we are basically sustaining as in keeping something the same, not making it worse. And then what regenerative has uh, taken root is is talking about, well, what if we can do things that, that heal? 
and and turn turn back the time because you know as we all as we all well ho- hopefully know there's you know some some pretty serious uh, catastrophes Damage. happening yeah. right now, um, and we we need to not just sustain what's going on but but actually look to to heal and turn back. So kelp and farming. So how does yeah kelp do that exactly? I think you were about to answer that. Yeah, I mean, so let's take the cast. Casco Bay up in Maine, um, which is, you know, just south of Portland, uh, where we grow most of our kelp right now. And you have um, uh, a bay that is warming. And as a result of that, you have, you know, um, dying really biodiversity, you have less species there, you have um, less shellfish, you have like smaller lobster uh, yields. So that affects the lobstermen up in Maine. And and then you kind of extrapolate that on a larger scale and you think about our oceans and dying species and warming waters and melting ice caps. But back to Casco Bay. So in this little bay, we've started growing um, kelp and, and I didn't start growing it. This has been going on for like 10 years. Um, these these lobstermen have been looking to make alternate sources of revenue off of the boats and the buoys that they already have. And so they're going out and they're um, basically like lining the rope with spores of kelp. And then over a six month growing period, that kelp, uh, which is a, a brown seaweed, uh, grows six to seven feet. And then it's harvested oh, wow. in April. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's okay. And that basically is an ocean plant. And so the way that, as you remember from, from high school, plants grow through photosynthesis, they take in carbon, it turns into their body mass and they, you know, ex- exhale oxygen. And so the kelp's doing the same thing in the water, but at a rate. Or the water. Amazing. Yeah, but at a really quick rate, because it's, you know, what plant do you know that grows seven feet in six months? So, right. This is a, uh, you know, a, a sequoia of the sea or a bamboo of the sea. And um, and so in that process, we are like deacidifying that Casco Bay. And it's having some really cool effects that, um, well, first of all, you're seeing shellfish with, with thicker shells. Um, you're seeing, you know, cooling temps, more oxygen. And so then back to that kind of big picture, if we had more kelp farms around the world, we would be able to really cool down our waters, increase biodiversity and all the good things. So, and then the question is what, what to do with the kelp, yes. right? Because how did those, and what were those lobster men doing with it before you came along? Yeah. I mean, you know, small, small scale stuff, you know, like selling kelp into restaurants and milling kelp into powder for supplements, selling kelp online, you know, to the to the, you know, weirdos that make their own seaweed salads. And, um, you know, I think one of the other things that's important to consider as a, as a sort of future food source is unlike everything that you and I have eaten or had to drink today, kelp grows abundantly without using fresh water or dry land. Um, right. so it's, it's just a, you know, it's one part of what we need is a, you know, a mosaic of solutions to, to, to really create a, a better way to feed the planet. And, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's so nutrient dense as well, which is, which is awesome too, for us to eat. Yeah. Okay. So I'm picturing you on a boat <laughs> and you have this like aha moment, you nibble on the kelp off of the rope. And then, I mean, <laughs> and then like, were you like, uh, okay, like, what can I do with it? Like, did you experiment with it? Were you thinking like salad? Were you automatically like, I need to dry this? I need to, I mean, what happened next, I guess? And obviously this probably took a few months at least, but 
what was the from this is a good thing. It's good for people. It's good for the environment. I feel connected to this. I'm excited to this is going to be the product. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was really lucky that I had already met a chef in the East village, pretty close to where I was crashing with a friend at the time. And he was obsessed with seaweed too. And he had already kind of been experimenting. He was a well-known meat jerky maker and meat, like just had a restaurant, um, which is no longer around called ducks eatery. That was really famous for, for meat and, and duck. And so, uh, he was experimenting with the kelp and I thought, wow, this could be a great person to work with on kelp jerky, you know, cause he was making salmon jerky. And so, but before that, even I was just getting the kelp right out of the water and chopping it up and, and cooking it. Um, it kelp kind of is like a cross between like a kale and a linguine. It has like a pasta vibe, but like a kale Swiss charty type of taste and texture. Yeah. I can, t- I, I, t- I feel like I know exactly. That was a really good, you probably worked on that at some <laughs> point, but that's a very good descriptor. Like can picture that exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just making it, you know, with like soy sauce and shrimp or soy sauce and different veggies. And I, um, yeah, so we started making the kelp jerky together pretty early and we were basically just hosting tastings for our friends and we'd buy some beer and they'd come over and they'd try different, different variations of the kelp jerky. Um, that was like 2018 when we, uh, we started working on that. And then also I was doing my research on the food industry and I think Crave Jerky had just sold to Hershey's for like 300 million bucks. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, cool. That's a softer jerky that was really one of the first to target, not just men, but also women with jerky. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, very early on saw the writing on the wall with, with the plant-based movement. Cause I, I myself had been plant-based since I was like 16 and, um, and yeah, so we started, you know, I thought, okay, you know, vegan, veganism's on the rise, jerky's on the rise, like, you know, kelp's obviously on the rise, at least in my yeah. head. And that was how we, we got to the, the product. Okay, we're going to take a little break because then, you know, what my next question is going to be. I mean, basically, then what? So <laughs> we'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm back with Courtney Boyd Myers from Akua. Okay, so now we've gotten to, we have a product. It's a jerky. Our friends and family like it. Were you like, now where do we make this? Now how do we, you know, how do we start 
doing all the things that need to be done, you know, what was next? Yeah. So we knew that we were making it in a kitchen. I mean, and just telling this story, it's like thinking back to just how much I didn't know about the food industry. It's like, it's scary that anyone gave me any money to build a business, honestly, at this this point. Um, But yeah, that was kind of the first step. You know, our, our chef uh, said he, he had raised money from friends for his restaurant. So he understood that concept. And, you know, to my credit, I had been in the tech and startup industry. So I clearly knew like what fundraising was and building a business that way. And, you know, just hadn't done it myself. And so I thought, okay. And I, you know, put some samples in a Ziploc baggie and got an introduction to like one of the top food VC firms, uh, Excel in New York. And I kind of just went right in and I said, all right, I'm going to make kelp jerky. We're going to save the world and it's going to be great. And like, that's why you should give us money. And, um, they were kind of looked at like me and the chef and they were like, okay, so clearly you're like the marketing idea person. That's great. And you're the chef, but like, who's going to actually run the business right. <laughs> and like, do make sure that this is like, you know, cause I had taken, I don't know if you remember the drink company Runa, but I had taken mm-hmm. their model and I didn't know how to do f- like complex formulas. And I had just like plugged in like what I thought our revenue numbers could be. And then like everything right. was like deleting yeah. cells and stuff. It was so bootleg. And so yeah. they, they thought, you know, you need a finance person. And then um, like that night online, this random guy reached out saying that he wanted to help with like finances and he loved what we were doing. So he joined and that was the three of us. And then we started, you know, just, we, you know, pulled together our, our first funding round in that first year. And, uh, and we also did a Kickstarter, which was super fun. Um, and then those combined funds were what allowed us to, to move to a co-packer and start scaled production. And then just in terms of, I mean, did you launch it with retailers or did you launch it direct? No. So given my background in tech and startups, like before I was at Summit and building community, I really was, and I was actually a journalist before that. So journalist, then tech person, then community builder. So I felt like I had a really good grasp for how to like move something online, whether it was a product or a story. And I was excited about food e-commerce and you know again this is like 2018 it's like pre-covid yeah, no, I mean, for sure this is <laughs> i mean this is height of d to c sort of is going to take over everything and there will be no stores yeah, yeah it was it was like um you know daily harvest was just getting going and companies like that and so i you know we we built a shopify site we you know kind of hacked that together we started thinking about fulfillment centers and yeah, we were going to just do it online and, and do it on Amazon and not even bother with grocery stores because I I did and kind of still do look at the grocery retail industry and just thought, wow, that is archaic. <laughs> I do not want to touch yeah. it. <laughs> Skip me right to the metaverse, um, which I've you know since learned retail is very necessary. And so we probably... <laughs> <laughs> Side note. <laughs> yeah, so, side note, I'm now well, pivot, pivoting the business completely into retail. <laughs> I mean, well, but it's interesting, right? Because I, I think about it and I'm like, okay, so what I what I think I one of my favorite things about doing this show is like, it really is like the founder and the products, they just, they, they're just like, they're so meant to be together you know? Hmm. And so it totally makes sense that this is your business. Like you are the person for this business and this business is the product for you. Um, which is really fun just as an outside looking in, but also 
you know, I always talk about consumer education and how, you know, I had no idea when we started that like what we were doing was so crazy by making fresh sauce and putting it in a pouch and having flavors like chimichurri. Hmm, And I've been told for the last four years, you know, that usually when you do something, you, you either change the form factor. So it's not in a bottle, it's a pouch, but everything else is the same, or you change, you know, where it is in the store. So it's the same exact flavors, but instead of being shelf stable, it's fresh, or you change, you know, you expose people to new things. But for us doing all three at the same time is like startling to, to some people, which of course was just like, me not knowing the industry. Hmm. But for you, now you have um, this new thing that, you know, I think maybe the sort of hippie health store food, you know, consumer knows what kelp is, knows that it's good for you. But now you've created this product with it how did you just even like break down this sort of like behemoth of marketing? Like, Mm. how did you think about, I mean, clearly there were going to be people that would be diehard from the beginning. And my guess is that you found them pretty quickly and that you leaned into them, but like, where did you start? Hey world, we have a kelp jerky. You didn't just like buy Instagram ads and cross your fingers. Clearly that's not how it went. So what was what was the plan there a little bit? I mean, to be honest with you, kelp jerky in its former form, we're now reformulating it, just didn't really hit the mark. You know, we found some early adopters who were, were you know, after a couple bites into it. But for the majority of people, this was a product that had too much kelp in it, was too healthy and... Um, and was not going to get that return for investors and was not going to be a product for a business that we were going to be proud to build. So at the start of 2020, we start getting ready for Expo West with the kelp jerky because that's all we had. But we were we were scrambling to think of product number two at this point. We were doing kelp bites, like granola bites with kelp in them, and then thought right. maybe, maybe a burger, maybe a burger, but you know, at, at Expo West, we were driving in there with what we were calling kelp balls at the time and, and kelp, <laughs> kelp uh-huh. jerky. And thank God Expo West was canceled. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. Well, I want to, I want to back up though for a second because oh, yeah. going back to the jerky. Okay. So now because you've had the burger has hit and the, you know, crab cakes have hit K with the, you know, crab with a K. Yeah. Um, now you can look back and be like, it wasn't. But is there, is there something that you extracted out of that? Was it, was it because people who wanted jerky didn't necessarily want something that was healthy? Was it that it wasn't packed in a way that made it easy for people to take on? Like, what were the, was it just that it just didn't taste good? Or was it that it was good, there just wasn't a big enough market to do what you wanted to do as a business. Like what 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 were the issues where you're sort of relieved that it was canceled? Well, I think that the kelp jerky as we made it was way too um uh like considerate of, of health 
nutritional facts, like zero added sugar, you know, really high protein, really high fiber. And a lot of people were eating it. It was just too healthy. Yeah. Yeah. They were eating it literally just feel like, I don't love the taste, but I love the health benefits and the way it makes me feel. And, you know, my co-founder at the time and I were just like obsessed with like nutrition and, and that very thing. And I think that that bubble is very small. Um, well, it's interesting. It's one of those things that people say Hmm. is important to them, but really they care about flavor. Yeah. Like for, I mean, unless you have like something that is just, you have a very niche group of people that are, you know, on a, on a particular diet, you know, and they literally don't care if it's cardboard. Um, but again, I, I think the, that's a niche, right? So if you're talking about making something that was like reaching a lot of people and like really sort of bringing this alternative to a large jerky market and stealing some actual share from that market, this wasn't going to do it in that, in that format, I think is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, I, I think it was, it comes down to the fact that, you know, there's just a very small percentage of people who will take something because it's healthy over taste. And typically those are in like packets that you chuck in the water and you chug. Um, and so I, I learned the, you know, the hard way, but easy in, you know, hopefully in the long scheme of things that you need to make products that are effing delicious. Um, that's the only thing that matters. And there goes the next thing. So the burger, so you, you, you got canceled, you didn't get canceled, Expo oh, got canceled. Almost, in I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Expo gets canceled. Everyone goes home. There's nothing going on. We're not allowed to leave our houses. <laughs> like the world comes to an end. And you're like, huh, what's my next product? And 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 you said you were toying around with the burger. Um, but how did that did you have a little whiteboard where were there a bunch of things and this was the one that rose to the top like what made you pull the trigger on that product yeah so we i think one thing that people learn when they're in the food industry is that like the one of the more important parts is like what can your co-packer do <laughs> and what does your co-packer or your manufacturer like want to do for you yep um and our co-packer uh is a part of a large seafood and meat business that makes salmon burgers crab cakes like you know mahi burgers all day long and they're like look burgers are really easy for us to make and to sell and distribute and so we very early on taken this kind of plant-based uh, angle with the jerky. So burgers made sense to me. And we actually always had had it in our pitch decks. Like we would do sausages and burgers and nuggets. And so it just felt like the time for a burger. And I think at this point, you know, beyond an impossible, we're really starting to blow up. And so, right. you know, the night that Trump announced he was closing the borders, I remember it was our um, first and last of that year. Well, until, you know, get things got a little easier, but our kelp burger tasting party and people really loved them. And I remember going home in a cab that night, calling my husband who was in the Alps, who was French and we actually weren't legally married at the time. And I said, you need to get on a plane tomorrow before Trump closes these borders. Like it is, it is so, it was such a, a moment I'll never forget. And I, 
when we went and out. also people love the kelp <laughs> and the kelp burgers were great and we like drove up to this cabin you know upstate new york and then over the next couple of weeks my co-founder just kept sending me samples of these kelp burgers that he was doing in his kitchen with feedback from that one event and then we said well we obviously need more people's feedback and so we uh, we launched the kelp beta burger club and we had, um, like, over the course of six months, a thousand of our customers pay for basically just the raw materials and the shipping. Like, we made it as, you know, we didn't make any money off this. And we just said, right. we probably lost money. And we said, look, like, um, you know, just try this and give us feedback. And so every two weeks, they'd get new samples, they'd give us feedback. And then, you know, we've basically finalized the recipe for the kelp burger that way over. That's the- awesome. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of two really, like, there are two things I kind of want to, like, extract and highlight out for people because I think you said something at the beginning of this that is really true, but I don't think is that obvious, which is, like, what else is your co-packer good at? And I think that, you know, kind of, like, founders got a found in a way, and we're, we have this proclivity to innovation, and the world around us makes us think like we need to just keep doing new things because that's what gets us the media and that's what gets us the LinkedIn excitement and that's what gets the Instagram likes. And, and, and that might be the case, although I would argue that too much innovation doesn't actually move the needle, but where do you start is you look at who are your current partners and what are they capable of doing that you might not be tapped into rather than trying to go out and build a completely new supply chain with a whole new set of partners. Um, I don't think that that's as obvious as it could be. You know, I think that we, we do tend to make things a little harder on ourselves than, <laughs> than we need to. And I mean, I was just talking to a founder the other day and they have a product line that is really, really working and one that is okay. And they, we're going to start thinking about another product line. And we were sort of like, you know, brainstorming together and they were like, well, actually the co-packer that makes the product that's really, really working also has this other thing. And then we were both like, Oh, we should, yeah, let's go do that. Like, you know, (laughs) it was, it was like an aha for her. And also, you know, I, I, I was just along for her ride essentially. Um, so I think that's like a really important thing for people to hear. And it's something that we might not even be asking, you know, what else do you do? What do you like doing? What are your core competencies? What do you see as coming toward you that could be interesting? All of that, you know, really working with the co-packer as a partner. And then the other piece is, you know, I have heard this in different variations. So people listening have definitely heard other founders talk about it, but really bringing in objective outside people to help you with product development. I am guilty of this myself. Like I don't ask enough other people, you know, what they think. I don't get too many people weighing in, you know, but it is something that you can make into a really fun, not only learning experience for you, but I think that get it gets those thousands of people who tried it really engaged and really rooting for you because they feel like they were a part of building it. Yeah. I mean, and then that gets back to the the community builder as CEO role. Um, And we actually, you know, we took that even a step further in 2020. I, you know, we 
we were running out of money at this point. And I said, I, you know, we need more money for this kelp burger. And instead of, you know, we went back to some of our investors and they were kind of like, you know, I already gave you money. <laughs> Go back out and get someone else's money. <laughs> and uh, it's really like, okay, crap. And it was also like 2020 and people were really scared to invest in, in new things. And um, we did raise like a, a tiny bit of capital from some like crazy people who are now my favorite investors. And um, then we did equity crowdfunding and, uh, and it was, it was awesome. And we just hit some really nice strides and, and maxed out, um, with like a million bucks from 2000 investors. And that was, so epic. can I ask you a question <laughs> about this? Just because it, it's kind of, I maybe help me here. So you're here with like an actual regenerative product that thousands of people have tasted and it's really good. And you needed to go basically like crowd fund. And then you have these like, quote unquote, tech companies making quote unquote meat, who are raising hundreds of millions of dollars at ridiculous valuations. Like why, why do you think that is like, what, what, what is different about that product? Is it just that they can scale it so much more quickly? Because it, it seems to me like they could only scale so quickly because they raise so much money so quickly. Like, why is it, why do you think? I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this, right? Like the, the numbers are ridiculous for some of these, you know, plant-based companies. And here you actually have a product that is being made that doesn't take a ton of you don't need to go build new factories. It's, it's got all of the pieces of the puzzle and it tastes really good. So why is it on such a different plane than those other ones? And you're, I mean, unless I'm wrong. No, no, I, (laughs) I mean, I have thought about this. We, you know, I, I think that there's a couple things. I mean, my, my very unpolished, knee-jerk reaction yeah. to that is I'm not a white dude from San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, cause you're, you're not a tech bro. Yeah, yeah. Which is not totally fair, but also not totally off the mark. Um, yep. and I think that, you know, part of it is there's this, you know, mindset in, in some of the plant-based world where if you're not mimicking meat, you're not going after a big enough market. You need to have right. a product that bleeds and is, you know, textured like steak and my whole thing, which I, I'm, I'm sort of building a product that's a little bit of the antithesis to that, because I, I never really saw, like, I always, again, like back to my like healthy goals, like I didn't want to make a product that had a ton of processed ingredients in it. And you need those processed ingredients to mimic meat. Right. Um, I guess in a way you're more of a veggie burger than, totally. a, than a meat burger, right? We are like a future food impact uh, veggie burger play, like for people who want a product they can eat every day, which I wouldn't right. categorize as like a beyond or impossible. And, um, you know, I think those are products that are great at your, you know, sporadic barbecue, but eating them every day will probably give you digestive issues. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say. But even like, okay, then like Soylent, right? Like, uh, I get, I mean, it's, is it, it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, I think, you know, my first thought is like, you know, I've had investors say, you're not thinking big enough. I'm like, right. I'm thinking like a couple hundred million dollars. Like that seems pretty big to me. Like, I don't know, you know, 
I, you're not thinking like a platform brand, you know, I'm like, well, first you need to have, I mean, at least in my brain, you need to like not get so ahead of yourself, like make a good product, have people like it, start building an audience, like see what your consumers, you know, like all of that stuff. And it just feels like, it just feels so clear to me in your case, you know, did you get feedback that like, you're just, you weren't, I mean, what was the feedback? Like why, or, or did you just decide, you know what, I don't need to go to, I mean, a lot of us have decided like funds are just not the right place for, you know, resourcing these companies at this stage. And I'd rather do it with people who, you know, who understand it in a different way. Like, I guess just a little more around that. Cause I'm, I'm feeling like a little bit, um, like annoyed on behalf of you? Well, you know, 2020 was was a different story than 2021. So 2020, we did this campaign. It ended May 2021. And then off the back of that, that is where all the private investors got excited. And we actually did close a seed seed round of 3.2 million. And we had, you know, private backers for that. So they did. did So I don't need to be as annoyed. No, no, no. no. We've, 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 We've gotten our, our day in the sun, and I think that we Great. have many more left. You've been but seen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think that there's something to be said that we see a lot in the food industry with some of these brands that have zero revenue and are on, like, a, you know, $70 million valuation. And you're just like, I mean, I... I the, the, it's like uh, one of my investors calls it like the hype bro type of mentality. And, you know, I'm like, I wish I was a little more talented at like spinning that yeah. story. And he was like, no, 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 don't think that because a lot of these valuations, uh, you know, are fun to ride on the way up, but horrible to ride on the way down. And to your point, like kind of building that business, like one sauce packet at a time, one retailer at a time, like is a really strong foundation. And like, at the end of the day, like you've proven yourself in retail and that's like the game, right. And, and making sure right. that people like your product and they're coming back to buy it. And like all these other types of, you know, zero revenue, huge valuation, you know, companies, like they haven't proven themselves in retail yet. Like, and sometimes right. no amount of marketing dollars, like will actually move the needle yeah. on that. Yes. Okay. So now that you've gotten me over my, like, hissy fit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm very happy for you. That's great. It's good that people saw it and that, you know, and so you raised that money presumably to support a retail launch. Yeah. We, we raised it to launch the kelp burger at the time in 2021, when we raised it, our, um, ambitions were still like omni-channel, like building the online business, like building the the retail business. Yes. And I think we've had like a pretty like big wake up call. Like a lot of the brands that ran into D2C during the pandemic have had, I mean, we were doing D2C before that, but still like we're, people are just buying food less online now. And it's, it's like kind of this big return to retail. And so we're now, you know, we've done, we've got the, the fundraise, we built a sales team, fired the sales team, hired some brokers, about to fire the brokers, hired a new sales yeah. guy, might need to hire another one. And now it's just been like really tough to find the right fit. And at the looking back, my biggest learning has just been like, damn, I shouldn't have hired anyone for that role. I should have hired people to do other things that were on my plate and just been that salesperson into retail. 
and built my yeah, own strategy. I, mean, <laughs> I think I look back, I think, I think Chris Kirby from Ithaca, I think he did that pretty early on. He just learned how to be the head of sales. Yeah. I actually, I also think the Cleveland crowd guys did that too. Mark. But, yep. Um, and, and so it's interesting. I mean, well, there are all these different parts of sales, right? Like you undoubtedly are the best salesperson. I'm sure you're in all of the meetings where yep. you're telling the story and selling the dream. And then there's this whole other part, which is the demand plan and dealing <laughs> with UNFI pricing and you know, the promo calendar and the reset schedule. And that's just that sales admin stuff is where you, the Venn diagram with you is just not going <laughs> to, there's going to be like no common space, but you know, so I, I don't know that, you know, any one of us can like, just be like, I should have just gone and done it. But I do think that a lot of early stage companies think we need to hire a pretty expensive sales person pretty early on. And very few of those partners, you know, like those hires work it is my just, you know, after 167 episodes of this, <laughs> I would say that that's my sort of, you know, overarching thought is that it just sales is the hardest thing to hire for. And if you don't even have, you know, if you're hiring someone with a lot of experience, but you don't even have distribution, right? That's what it. are they even doing? Yeah. You know, they're basically, they need to open one of three potential national retailers who can open up a ton of DCs that then you can go sell out of. But that, to your point, isn't necessarily like, a, you know, 150 plus thousand dollar a year job. Correct. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, you know, hard to say, I think the stakes, you know, is like hiring brokers too early. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that is, uh, you have to get like the timing, right? The chicken or the egg timing with like bringing on distributors, bringing on stores and hiring brokers. And that's like, uh, you know, I'm sort of only realizing what the right strategy might've been for us after I did the wrong one, but it Us too. I mean, <laughs> even within, I mean, honestly, we went from like regional grocery brokers to a national grocery broker. Then we decided, okay, we actually want to be with produce brokers because grocery brokers don't necessarily have the connectivity to the part of the store where we want to be merchandised. So, and maybe we want to go with a bunch of regional, like we're still, and by the way, I'm sure this will change too. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I think this is ever evolving. I, I don't know that you can look back and be like, I would have done this better, I guess. Well, we went national first. I mean, no, we've made a lot of really rookie errors, but I think that, yeah, it's, we're just launching with the new Akehi program this month. And about a month later, we're doing UNFI up next. Like we've got some stores that have said yes to like open up the DCs and, uh, and and, it, and then now it's kind of also about finding culture fit. So like, you know, I, I think you're clearly like a very hip co-founder has a podcast, like, you know, you know, like the tech tools and it's probably like, for me, it's like a grind working with some of these brokers who, 
instead of just writing me an email, send like a word document as an attachment that I have to open that has their notes in it from our call. Which I know is, it's these I'm, ways of working. I mean, we, we had a whole thing internally because the sales team that now has come and they're fantastic, but like they don't use Macs. They use PCs. And like, we were all like, wait, but what? They also don't particularly like, like Slack. They oh, like I know it's email, so tough. but it's just, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, and, and for a while we were like, it was like, is this, is this going to work? You know, how is it all going to work? You know? And we, and it wasn't the actual job. It was like the way yeah. that we all were going to be communicating together. And to your point, like the culture fit, but you know, someone told me once, like, you know, basically there's like the brand and then there's the business and the business works on PC and the brand works on Mac. And like, I'm now like, okay, as long as there's some connective tissue between that and that, and like, they, they know how to support each other and marketing knows how to support sales and sales knows how to communicate with ops and everyone knows how to like deal I, I guess my point is like, I don't think we're changing these broker networks anytime right. soon. Nope. You know, they're, they're just, it's how they've done it. It's worked. They don't, you know, I think some of them are interested in these kind of like new, new kid companies, but they've seen so many things come and go that they're probably like, yeah, all right. You know, thank yeah. you for your feedback. I'm going to keep sending you that attachment. And like, you're going to have to log into this thing to see a picture of me standing in front of the store. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I like, that's not that important to me. What I do need is a pic is a, is an actual good photograph of the store, which for some reason no one can seem to take, you know, like of the shelf with the thing. I'm like, you took that picture. Can you maybe straighten the sauce? Like there are just so many funny things about dealing with, it's so anachronistic and yet it really is just the way that it, it is, you know? And at the end of the day, like we're not shipping software, right? Like we're shipping hard physical items. And so part of that in itself is going to mean that we have to rely on, you know, tried and true old school ways of doing shopper things. marketing. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep, merchandising. Yeah. Okay. So we only have a few more minutes. I know that you also just launched the crab cake with a K Um, so similar idea, this is like meant to be like, I mean, by the way, that sounds amazing and I don't eat shellfish, so I'm definitely like psyched for the crab cake. Um, I can't wait to know which Haven kitchen sauce is going to go best on the crab cake. Well, it's funny because our new one that's coming out in February, I just feel like is, we're definitely doing a partnership with either the burger or the crab cake because it's a perfect fit. Um, so we'll talk about that offline, but, um, what is the, is the idea to have every retailer have, you know, is there one flavor of kelp burger and one flavor of crab cake? So you definitely want to have both skews on the shelf or. Ooh, this is the the question that we've just, I, I just heard a new CFOs who's been awesome. And, um, we actually are doing two more flavors of kelp burgers that'll be in retail this fall and not bringing the crab cake into retail in the foreseeable future. So the crab cake is 
potentially like a four times a year seasonal run D to C we're going to see what the legs look like in food service. Um, but yeah, it's like once again, like learnings, first of all, the crab cake's a little expensive to bring into retail at the moment. We have to work on some cogs reduction. And then two is like, you know, right now our best selling place in the grocery store is in the plant-based meat alt section, even though like the kelp burger could kind of look like, you know, a vegan surf and turf. So we've got it and all the earth fairs in the Southeast in the frozen seafood section. And it's not doing as well as other right. retailers in the meat alt. So I think, but isn't that fun though, in a way, like, I mean, I remember talking to Haley from actual veggies. Is that what? Yeah. yeah actual yeah. veggies, right? Like which just talking about like, if we're trying to figure out where we go, like everyone's just trying to figure out like how do you make how do you make a, a a cigarette boat or whatever they're called, like those little tiny skinny little fast things work with a cruise ship? Like or or a tanker. Like how do we make our brands work in this ecosystem of a grocery store that has these categories that aren't quite right and the what are we next to? Where do we want to be? Even Jake, when he came on with Sweet Nothings, when they their big unlock was like, they don't want to be next to ice cream. They want to be next to frozen fruit. Mm. Like, there are all these, there are all these like, it, it, I think it becomes a little bit of fun if if you can take the time and have retailer partners who do want to test with you, right? Like that's the big question. Yeah, so, but you're, and, and but it's different in every retailer. Is, right, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, that's one of the things I've heard, like, consumers aren't going to look for you in different places everywhere, so you need to make sure that you're in the same place in every store. And I was like, well, then we are, like, DOA, because <laughs> we're not anywhere close to the same place in every store. Some some have a plant-based set. Some want us in produce. Some want us in next to the meat, you know, and Yes, we have some conviction around it, but we're not going to say no necessarily right now if you want us in the butcher area, because that makes sense. It is chimichurri, you know? Even better, put me in every area. (laughs) Well, that's my thing. I'm like, let's do a test. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you have a thousand stores, do 300 in each one of these places, and let's see where we do the best. And then there's usually crickets. Yeah. Um, Okay. Final question, and I haven't asked this one in a while, but you, I really wanted to ask this one of you because I think you will give a very thoughtful answer. On top of the stuff that you've already talked about, what do you wish someone had told you or what is the sort of singular piece of advice that you find yourself repeating to earlier stage founders that are asking you, you know, advice? Mm. Um, two things sprang into my head and one we touched about on this call, which was, you know, really just working much more closely with your co-packer and, and building, you know, and, and paying attention to ways you can save money and ways you can innovate within their parameters. Um, and, and finding a good co-packer and like just locking that in and loving that relationship. Like, Um, the second piece of advice that I'll, you know, tie them together is, um, I started the business and anyone that wanted to like work on the business, I made a co-founder because I was just like, so 
like you can be a co-founder, you can be a co-founder, like just so over the moon that someone else wanted to join me on this journey. And, um, you know, very frankly, I've had, I think now three co-founders who are no longer here. I mean, four, if you count some very short stints, uh, maybe five actually. (laughs) Uh, And I look back and this is just always been my company. Yeah. And I, 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 you are not the only person I hear that a lot. Um, it happens to, to a lot of us, especially when we want to be collaborative. All right. I know Armin has another show that he has to go get engineering. Otherwise I would keep going, but Armin, um, thank you as always for, um, the work that you do behind the scenes to make this happen. CBM. Thank you. You did not disappoint. I'm so happy. Thank you for coming on. Um, I really loved how candid you were. I knew that you would be. Um, and listeners, I have actually a lot of really fun things lined up for the next couple of months. So um, don't worry. I'll be back with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.